0: Part two of NUMBER one of The Heart of a Mystery by L. T. Meade and Robert Eustace. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mademoiselle Delacourt continued. Thesiger now led the way to his library. He opened the door for me, and I entered. Mademoiselle was standing in the shade of a lamp. She wore full dinner dress, covered with a long opera cloak, lined with rich silk of a rosy hue. Nothing but the utmost necessity, Mr. Finnaise, would make me intrude myself on you at a moment like this, she began. Your business, I interrupted. I will tell you in as few words as possible. You were a great friend of Mr. Escott's, were you not? His greatest friend, mademoiselle. May I ask if you had any idea as to the nature of his profession? As mademoiselle uttered these words, I watched her face closely. Notwithstanding all her efforts to wear a mask of utter indifference, I noticed on her smooth young features an expression of anxiety, joined to what might almost be called fear. I certainly knew about my friend, I answered. But, pardon me, what affair is it of yours? I will soon explain. Please listen. Mr. Escott was a member of the British Secret Service. You know that fact, so do I. Less than an hour before I reached his house I received an urgent message from him, to come at once, as he had a matter of the utmost importance to tell me i came on the scene just too late he was giving you his confidence did he say anything about me he did not then did he tell you that secret of great importance i decline to discuss the question mademoiselle her eyes flashed an angry fire and her face hardened mr Finay's, she said earnestly you are unknowingly putting yourself into danger i use the word advisedly it is my duty to warn you the secret service requires much of its votaries the communication mr escott made to you was not a pleasant one for you to receive he only told you because i was not present beyond doubt his instructions were that you were to deliver the message to me you are mistaken i answered those were not his instructions as i spoke i walked to the door and held it wide open i think mademoiselle our conference has come to an end to my amazement she changed colour the hard look left her face her eyes filled with tears, which rolled over and ran down her cheeks. "'I spoke hastily,' she exclaimed. "'I am always hasty, always excitable, unfit, most unfit for that which which I have undertaken. But you are so cold, so suspicious. Why do you not trust me? Do you think I would injure him?' "'I will be truthful with you,' I replied. My friend was about to confide a secret to me, but your entrance prevented it ever reaching his lips. I shall never know what he wanted to say.' It was your fault. He sought to relieve his mind, and the secret may have been of consequence. That I am unprepared to say. I have never heard it. It can, therefore, never be imparted to you. She smiled. Do you really think that I believe you? she answered. Did I not with my own ears hear words to convince me of the contrary? You will be sorry for this. Are you leaving Paris at once? After the funeral. She gave me a curious stare, but did not speak. Without offering her hand, she left the room. On the day of the funeral I received a letter. It was directed in a strange hand, was enclosed in a black-edged envelope, and bore the mark of a Paris suburb. The words in it were typewritten, and were in the French tongue. They ran as follows. We are well aware that your friend, before he died, told you his secret. Understand that if you divulge that secret to the British government, or if in any way it reaches their ears, You are a dead man. No human precautions and no human laws can possibly protect you. We shall know it at once, by the steps the British government will take on receipt of the intelligence, whether they have learnt the secret or not. Therefore, beware. I read this strange letter twice, at first with bewilderment, then with growing interest. One of two things had happened. Either I was the victim of a pitiable and laboured jest, or I had received a threat of some seriousness. In either case, the letter, being anonymous, must be disregarded. My thoughts naturally flew to Mademoiselle Delacorte. Could she have written the letter? I dismissed the notion as impossible. But if she were not the author, who was? For who else knew that I was with Escott? Just then the words the poor fellow had said on his deathbed recurred to my memory. My life has been in great danger, and that danger I hand to you when I tell you my secret.' A shudder ran through me. "'I must consult my London lawyer about this,' I said to myself, and I rose from my chair in Thesiger's sitting-room with the intention of packing my things. Just then a servant entered with a letter. "'By messenger, sir,' he said briefly. I tore open the letter. It was in a handwriting quite unknown to me. "'Another anonymous communication,' I said to myself. "'What does it mean?' I turned quickly to the signature of the second letter and then I gave a start of relief the letter was headed chateau la roque and at the end was the signature edward la roque these were the contents of the letter my dear sir i have just heard to my infinite distress of my friend escott's death i received a letter from him a few days ago telling me that he was about to send for you in order to entrust a secret of great importance to your keeping now as i know all about the matter i am anxious to see you at once my house is situated four kilometers outside the village of Bevalon. a train leaves La guerre du nord for Bevalon at five o'clock this evening arriving at the village at six o'clock if you can make it convenient to come by that train a carriage shall meet you and bring you at once to my chateau pray do not delay as the matter is of great urgency Yours faithfully, Edouard Roque. I gave a pleased exclamation. This letter was indeed a comfort. Just when I was despairing of ever being able to communicate with M. Roque, he gave me the opportunity I required. When Thesiger came in, I told him of Roque's letter, at the same time mentioning that I intended to leave Paris that evening. He did not ask me for any particulars, but said that he would be pleased at any time to serve me, and to put me up if I required to come back to the French capital. I reached the Gare du Nord in good time, and my train set me down just about six o'clock at Bévalon. I found a brome waiting for me. I entered it and told the man to take me to the Château La Roque. The sun had just set, and a watery moon was creeping up the sky. As I drove along, I could see stretches of marsh and wasteland intersected by dikes. The air was damp, and a rising mist rendered distant objects indistinct. Presently the road took a sharp turn, and the old chateau burst into view. I can vividly recall my impressions as I first saw it. It was a well-preserved feudal fortress, lying in a hollow, and with a wide moat surrounding it. The chateau was of the typical Norman type, with round bastions at each corner, and surrounded by battlements. As the carriage drew up at the drawbridge, I alighted, entered the courtyard and was about to advance to the principal entrance when to my amazement my eyes fell upon the figure of mademoiselle francesca de la she was talking to an elderly man but when she saw me she came quietly forward smiling as she did so ah mr finaise she exclaimed by all that is wonderful i could not help answering how is it that i see you here you see me here for a very natural reason was her answer i am staying in the house with my godfather I have known him all my lifetime. You will like him, Mr. Finnaise. He is a great chemist, and is making some investigations at the present time for me, for my hobby is also chemistry. The fact is, I am proud to tell you I have made a small discovery which may be of use to the world. Monsieur Laroque is helping me to perfect it. But come, Mr. Finnaise, I must not keep you talking any longer. Follow me, will you?" Her manner was courteous and friendly but a strange despondency came over me as i talked to her and the comfort which i had hitherto experienced in the receipt of mr Roque's letter gave place to a strange feeling of unaccountable distrust mademoiselle led the way into the old house we passed down several dark passages and then paused outside a door covered with green baize this she flung open and going in before me invited me to follow "'Seated by a log fire was an old man, whose bent back and long grey hair were all I could see. "'How do you do, Monsieur Laroque? I said, bending towards him. "'I have answered your letter in person. I am Mr. Finnais.' "'As I spoke, I noticed that Mademoiselle had left the room. "'I looked at my host, expecting a word of welcome. "'He was silent for a moment. Then he said gravely, "'This is Francesca's doing, but it is good of you, Mr. Finnais, to come.' "'Mademoiselle's doing?' I could not help interrupting. "'Yes, she happened to be present when poor Escott died, and gave me to understand that he had imparted a somewhat serious matter to you. If so, we shall have something to discuss, and I hope you will forgive the liberty a complete stranger takes in summoning you here.' "'But there is no liberty,' I replied. "'On the contrary, I cannot tell you how grateful I am. Poor Escott spoke to me of you on his deathbed, and asked me to communicate with you immediately.' he said that he had left a letter addressed to you in his cabinet i could not find it and did not know your address therefore was unable to write to you your letter to-day therefore makes all straight i am much relieved i presume mr fernays you are now on your way to london in order to hand on the communication which escott made to you to the right quarter i am returning to london i answered but an unfortunate thing happened poor escott's secret was never confided to me he was about to tell it when he was interrupted. How? Miss Delacourte, in what I consider an unwarrantable way, burst into the room. The shock killed him. Francesca was always impulsive, said the old man. He paused for a moment, and his face looked downcast. Is it really true, he then said, that you know nothing? Nothing, I replied. And yet someone must act, and at once, continued Monsieur La Roque, THE MATTER IS OF VITAL IMPORTANCE. IF I WERE NOT A CRIPPLE, I COULD, BUT THERE I AM POWERLESS. GOD ONLY KNOWS WHAT THE CONSEQUENCES MAY BE IF THOSE SCOUNDRELS. HE BROKE OFF A FAINT STREAK OF COLOUR IN HIS FACE. WELL, SIR, I AM GLAD TO SEE YOU. YOUR COMING IS OPPORTUNE. YOU WILL, OF COURSE, REMAIN FOR THE NIGHT. I HAVE COME PREPARED TO DO SO. THAT IS WELL. AFTER DINNER I WILL TELL YOU WHAT I KNOW. HE RANG THE BELL WHICH WAS CLOSE TO HIS SIDE an old servant in faded livery appeared. He took me to a room on the second floor. I changed into my dinner dress and came downstairs. I found my host and mademoiselle in the room. The meal was announced. The old servant, Paul, gave his arm to my host and conducted him to the head of the table. During dinner, Francesca Delacorte led the conversation. She spoke well in excellent French. My host now and then looked at her with an affectionate smile. She was, beyond doubt, a handsome and attractive woman. We dined simply, and when the meal came to an end, La Roque turned to his goddaughter. "'Francesca,' he said, "'Mr. Finesse and I are going to the laboratory. We are about to have an important conversation. Can you do without us for a time?' "'Of course I can,' she answered. "'But, Godfather, the laboratory is too damp for you just now. I must go down first and see that it is comfortable.' "'Very well, my dear. Turn on the electric light. The room is thoroughly warm, and your idea with regard to its being damp is—pardon my saying it—nonsense.' She shook her head, and her eyes met mine fully. There was something in their glance, which again brought back that intense sensation of discomfort and uneasiness which her presence had before produced. She went as far as the door. Then she turned and looked at me again. Her second glance caused a curious tingling in my spine. As I write these words, I recall that queer look. There was a strange expression round her mouth, a slight narrowing of her dark almond-shaped eyes, a peculiar smile, which first lit up the gloomy depths of her eyes, hovered round her lips, and vanished. A moment later I had forgotten about her, being much entertained by my host's conversation. We chatted for a few minutes, then he turned to me. "'If you will walk down the passage outside this room, Mr. Finesse, and open a baize door at the end, you will find some steps. Pray go down the stairs to the laboratory. I shall be with you in a moment or two. I immediately proceeded to carry out his instructions. I walked down the passage, opened the baize door, and went downstairs. The whole of the castle was lit with electric light. It looked strangely out of place in this Norman fortress. But La Roque was nothing if not scientific, and the latest improvements in science were, he assured me, always to be found in his house. As I entered the laboratory, I started to see that Mademoiselle de was there. She was bending over a cylinder. When I appeared, she hastily pushed it behind a velvet curtain. Then she turned, looked at me, and smiled. I will leave you and my godfather to your business, she said, and she went away without waiting for me to speak to her curiosity impelled me to walk to the curtain and push it back in order to see what was behind it only two cylinders which might have contained anything but were now empty i vaguely wondered why they were there and what mademoiselle delacourt was doing with them a weight of gloom and nervousness overpowered me but my host's footsteps caused me to pull myself together and the next instant he entered the room ah he said sinking with a sigh into his easy chair "'Do you know, Farnese, that this is one of the finest laboratories in the neighbourhood of Paris? Here I do all my scientific work. I am quite quiet here and undisturbed. Anyone would think a place of this sort would be damp, for it is only just above the level of the moat. But in reality it is not. The air of the room is quite warm and dry,' I answered. "'Yes, that is the case,' he replied. Then he was silent for a minute. "'I am glad you have come, Mr. Farnese,' he said then for if that secret got into the wrong hands, it would do the most incalculable and awful mischief. Now come nearer to me, and I will tell you everything. Hello? What is that? He had scarcely spoken, before we were plunged into darkness. The electric light had gone out. That infernal dynamo has broken down again, he said. It is really too bad. Please hand me the matches, and we will light a lamp. You will find them just there on the bench." Run your hand along and you will touch the box. I rose to comply, guided by a streak of moonlight which entered through a narrow window. I cannot find any matches, I said. Just wait a moment. I will go to the dining room and get some. I opened the door and began to climb the stairs. I had not gone up a dozen steps when I heard him call out, All right, here they are. Come back, please. I had just turned to do so when a sudden and terrific explosion occurred an explosion of such awful violence that I felt myself hurled up against the stonework as if by an unseen arm. For a moment I was so stunned that I could scarcely understand what had happened. Then self-control returned to me, and I went quickly back to the laboratory. A terrible sight met my gaze. The room was absolutely wrecked, the window panes and sashes blown out, and the floor strewn with shattered furniture in one corner, evidently propelled there by the violence of the explosion, lay the body of my poor host. I rushed to raise him up, but one glance was sufficient to show that he was quite dead. I was just about to go for assistance, when Mademoiselle, followed by several servants, hurried in. On seeing me, she gave a sharp cry, and I shall never forget the curious look of horror and intense disappointment on her face. Then she seemed to recover herself she stood by the door, with both hands raised. "'Ah!' she cried. "'I warned him! So it has happened at last.' "'What do you mean?' I said. "'Can you throw any light on this fearful thing?' "'I can,' she replied. "'I warned him. But he would never listen. Come upstairs, and I will tell you.' "'You shall tell me here,' I answered. "'Bring a lamp at once,' I continued, turning to the servant. He turned to obey. Miss Delacorte and I stood facing each other. The moonlight coming in through the shattered windows fell on both our faces. All the distrust I felt for her shone doubtless in my eyes. Just for a moment, her eyes quailed under my gaze. A man came down with a lamp. "'Now for your explanation,' I said. "'Do you doubt my word?' she asked. "'I doubt everything about you,' I replied. "'I doubted you from the first moment I saw you. Now I doubt you terribly.' "'And yet you are wrong,' she said." but some men cannot help being suspicious i await your explanation i said and i will give it she said have you ever heard of marsh gas certainly then you will soon be at the bottom of this awful incident marsh gas is to be found in places where vegetation decomposes it is the same thing as fire damp which causes so many mining disasters its deadliness consists in its not being detectable by any of the senses as it has no color or smell. But when mixed with the air, it forms one of the most explosive gaseous mixtures there is. Now, I have often suspected that this gas found its way into M. Roque's laboratory from the moat. Of course, even if it did come in, he would be safe as long as only the electric light was burning. But any unguarded flame, even that caused by the lighting of a match, would bring on an explosion. But why were you not also present when the explosion took place? I went to find matches, I answered. The electric light went out suddenly. I could not find the matchbox and went upstairs to get some. Mademoiselle, why did the light go out? What were you doing when you bent over the cylinder? Why did you push it behind the curtain? I looked behind the curtain when you left the room and found two cylinders. They may have contained compressed air or anything. She turned white. You will be sorry for this, she said. Your suspicions are past enduring. She turned and left the room. How I spent the rest of that night I can scarcely tell, but towards morning I went to my bedroom and lay down without undressing. I had scarcely dropped asleep before I was aroused by someone touching me. Looking up I saw the old servant, Paul. The carriage is at the door, sir. A train for Paris leaves Bellevallon in less than an hour. I will drive you to the station. You are not safe in this house, Mr. Fanace. In heaven's name, what do you mean? I asked. He bent near and spoke in a whisper. May God forgive me if I am wrong, Sir, but I must speak. There was nothing the matter with the dynamo. I saw Mademoiselle with her own hands turn off the current. I raised myself on my elbow and stared hard at the old servant. I will take your advice, Paul, I said, and get back to Paris at once. End of part Two of Mademoiselle. Delacorte.